Well, good morning. It is good to join with you this morning in worship. Good to visit with you. Some of you I've gotten to know over the past couple of months. Some of you I've known for many years. I'll leave to you to figure out some of the familial family tree relationships here. Uh, but above all, gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ. And send you greetings from Emmanuel Baptist Church, where my family and I worship and our members there. As we've heard God's Word read to us this morning from Philippians 2, and it'll be the focus of our consideration this morning, would you go ahead and join with me in a brief prayer as we ask God to bless the preaching of His Word? Father, this morning we come to you and we ask simply that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law. Because, Lord, we, we know left to ourselves that we are blind, that we are forgetful, uh, that we do not see the true goodness of who you are and what you've given to us. We pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies because we know that they are prone, as we have sung, to, to wander. We need to be directed to you and to the goodness of your truth. We pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name because we have divided hearts. We, we love you and we want to serve you, and at the same time we see our hearts divided in different directions. And we pray that you would satisfy us with your presence because you alone have the words of life. You alone can truly satisfy and give to us what our souls need. And so we pray that you would be faithful to the promise of your word to do all of these things in us and through us for the glory of Christ and for the good of our own lives. We pray that you would be faithful by the working of your own spirit through your own word to conform us to the image of your son as we see him here in your text, we pray. Amen. Well, we'll be in Philippians 2 this morning, and it is our aim to work our way through these 11 verses that were read to us previously. Perhaps a familiar passage to you, or at least some of the verses here. What we have before us this morning is one of the richest passages in all of Scripture concerning both the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. In a matter of just a few short verses here, the Apostle Paul has spread before us the mystery of our redemption. And when you read this slowly and prayerfully, this hymn of praise, it, it ought to to move us towards reverent worship as we see Christ both bowing to the Father's will and then, as Paul says, raised up to the glory of God the Father. And yet, even in seeing all that and perhaps even being moved in worship to God, the praise of God is never removed from the practical details of everyday life. In fact, this is the very reason that Paul draws the attentions of the Philippians to this truth of who Christ is and the conduct of Christ, uh, springing really from his concern for their own conduct. The praise of God and the practical living of God's people are to always be united and to be held together. And one of the great interests of Paul for these Philippian believers is for their unity. He's been exhorting them along these lines. In fact, if you just look back at your Bibles to the previous chapter in verse 27, he's already begun to speak to this concern. So he says there, praying and asking that they would be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As he writes to these believers, not only their exaltation of Christ, but their unification with one another is something that is of great concern to him. Well, there's several reasons for this emphasis, several reasons that it would make sense for Paul to speak to these things, given what he's writing to them about. For one, it has to do with the witness of the church. Since the gospel is the message of reconciliation, it's not a very compelling message when the messengers become sidelined by divisions and strife. We preach reconciliation, but then on the side we're embattled in all sorts of division. And so for the, 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 the witness of the church, unity has to be a concern, but also the well-being of the church. Because disunity, as unfortunately some of us know, ends up turning believers in upon themselves. In Paul's words elsewhere, it says you bite and devour one another. Literally a church eating itself alive. For these reasons, unity is of great importance. And so for, in light of all of this, Paul now focuses the spotlight upon the church at Philippi. And in the most gentle and pastoral way, he breaches the subject of unity. Now later he's going to become more specific as he calls out two women by name and exhorts the church to help them to be unified. But for now what he does is he lays a bit of a foundation for oneness and humility as he points them to Christ. Now this call for unity is most certainly a call that's relevant for any church today especially when we remember that our churches are, are filled with individuals who carry a wide spectrum of preferences, a varied history of experiences, a broad swath of traditions and expectations, and we gather in one place as one body. You can see how unity amongst all of that diversity is of utmost importance. We also recognize that this call remains unity, call for unity remains relevant in our homes, in our marriages, between spouses and children, because it's there in homes where most often really the rough edges of our selfishness tend to scrape up alongside one another. Therefore, if we, as God's people, are to know the good fruit of the gospel, we must know something of the fullness of Christian unity. As we consider that, there's really two lines of thought here as Paul pleads with them for unity and then gives to them this picture of unity. Let's look back at our Bibles at verse 1 where Paul pleads with the church for unity. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Now, at the outset, it would probably be helpful to have some 
understanding of the, the flow of, of Paul's logic here as he, he addresses these Philippian brothers and sisters. Where he's going is this. If you notice, he lays out an assumption, and then based upon that assumption, he gives a command. And then after giving that command, he clarifies it with some expectations. Now, this is something that is not foreign to us. Oftentimes, a parent might say to a son or a daughter uh, something very similar in flow. Um, I assume, son, daughter, that you enjoy all the privileges and responsibilities of living in this home. Therefore, keep your room clean. And by clean, my expectation here is that you don't just shove stuff under your bed. You don't take the piles of clean laundry and just put them back in the hamper. There would be the assumption, the command, and the qualifying expectation. This is something similar of what Paul does here in these first four verses. The assumption is there in verse 1. Now, we read a series of ifs. If this, if this, if this. But it's helpful to understand that when he says if, it's not in the sense that if it may or may not be true. He's using this word if as a rhetorical question. And we know what those are. It's the sort of question you ask when the answer is so plainly obvious. It's the sort of question you ask to make a point because it's so obvious. If this is true. And what are the assumptions he makes here? Well, we are those who are greatly encouraged by being in Christ. To be in Christ is to share all the blessings that he has gained for us. It's Paul's shorthand for what he means by being a Christian, to be in Christ. If there's any encouragement in that, and that's so blatantly obvious, Christ does not just grant us holiness. He does not just grant us access or assurance. Christ gives us himself. And so in Christ, we have his holiness. We have assurance because he stands before the Father, and so we do as well. We have access to the Father because he has access to the Father. So Paul says, surely there's great encouragement in Christ. We are those who are greatly comforted by his love. As we think about this, we recognize that it's a love that's not dependent upon our own love for God because Christ loves us despite ourselves. The love of God in Christ is displayed upon a cross that says God loves sinners. If there's any comfort in that, and well, surely there is, Paul. He says we are those who share a common participation in the Spirit. We are united to God and bound to this triune God by the Spirit Himself. The same Spirit that came upon Jesus, the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, indwells all believers. And all of this creates, as he says, great affection and great sympathy between Paul and the Philippians and between believers of all times and every place. To all of this, we say in agreement, yes and amen. So upon that assumption, he then, then gives a command. And that command is there in verse 2. If all of this is true, let it be known by your unity with each other. Doctrine is so intensely 
practical. What we have in Christ is meant to translate into what we have with each other. As you read your New Testament, you will never find any sense of being able to have doctrine but not have it permeate everyday life. That is impossible. That is not a true understanding of doctrine. And Paul's building his plea for unity upon these doctrines of what we have in Christ. So much so that he bases this command upon the announcement of what we have in Christ. He says, if this is true, then live in this way. He would never just say, if this is true, just believe it in your heads. If this is true, live in this way. And just what exactly, precisely is this command? Be unified to such a degree that you have the same mind, the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. This means that if we bear the the name of Christ, unity amongst brothers and sisters is not something that is optional. It's not something that we possess only when it's convenient. Because what he's saying is if we are united in Christ, if we are finding great comfort in his love, if we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, then a lack of unity is incongruent with our new identity. It just doesn't make sense. And after giving that command, he then does what? He clarifies it with this expectation. He doesn't just leave it out there in vague terms. He puts a sharp point on it, and he moves a little bit closer with a pair of not this, but this statements. Not like this, but like this. These are the expectations that Paul says. He says, number one, not self-consumed, but others-focused. That's verse 3. What does he mean by this plea for unity? That we are not self-consumed, but that we are others-focused. His word for this is humility. Pride and vanity love to talk about themselves love to think about themselves. When pride walks into the room, it wonders what others think about them. Pride judges the value of a conversation by how interesting or how relevant it is to them. Pride insists, obviously I'm first, and then gives the reasons. While humility is genuinely considered and concerned others before themselves. He says, not self-consumed, but others-focused. And then in verse 4, clarifying this, he says, not individualism, but community. Unity cannot exist where each person is looking out for him or herself. Unity cannot exist when we constantly judge everything only by what it will cost ourselves and then place value upon that. Like-mindedness comes when we take time to actually consider what's on one another's minds. I can't be like-minded with you if I give no thought for what concerns you. What is upon your heart? What is upon your mind? 
What has your week been like? What's pressing in upon you? What's before you? Not individualism, but community. This is Paul's concern. And so then, if the unity of the church is the overflowing joy of Paul, and his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, this means that any lack of unity ought to grieve us because of how close this is to the heart of God. Now, saying all of that, we might even agree and we might nod our heads, but we all know this is the challenge. Having the same mind, having the same love does not come easily within the body of Christ. When you consider, as we said, that a church is made up of people from a variety of ages, generations, ethnicities, backgrounds, differing experiences, temperaments, personalities, it should not surprise us that unity does not come easily. So if that is the case, why does Paul insist so heavily upon unity? Number one, because it's absolutely necessary. Unity is necessary because our mission is to spread the gospel. And as he said back in verse 27, that mission cannot, cannot, cannot succeed without striving together in one mind. Our mission is not isolated individuals, but to strive together, standing side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. Unity is essential for our mission as a church. And really, it's something that Paul insists upon because it's possible. Unity is actually possible because every Christian shares and is a partaker of the same Holy Spirit, and that Spirit is conforming us to the image of the same Son. Therefore, united in Christ is a possibility because we are all partakers of this same triune God, and we are all, in a sense, converging upon this same focal point, Christ himself. And so unity is not a lost cause. It's not something that's just an ideal that will, will never happen because God is faithful to His Word to conform us to this very same image. Yet, even with all of that, even with the same Holy Spirit, even with the same mission given to us, Christians still struggle to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There, there's just no way around it. Why is this? Well, the short answer is sin, isn't it? We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We just sung of that this morning. The power of sin has been broken. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. But the presence of sin, it remains, doesn't it? And we wage war with it. Listen to James words in his epistle, James chapter 3, towards the end there in verse 13, he asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What the Scriptures are telling us and what they are pointing us to is that even though unity is necessary, even though unity is is possible, unity is not automatic. It is not something that we as Christians can just put on autopilot and expect unity to just show up one day. We do not drift towards unity on our own. Left to ourselves, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we all naturally drift towards self because of the remaining presence of sin, and therefore we would be so foolish to think that a couple hundred people still battle, battling the remaining corruption of sins and dwelling presence would naturally blend together without dependence upon Christ. We would be foolish to think that our homes or our marriages or our relationships will naturally be unified if we are not recognizing our propensity to love ourselves. So the question then that all of this points to is, what do we do? We look to Christ. And that's exactly what Paul does. He pleads with them for this unity. And then the the last few verses of this section, this wonderful hymn of praise, are an effort to say, be unified. Now let me paint you a picture of Christ. We deal with all the various factions and divisions and love of self and pride and arrogance by looking to Christ. Look down at your Bibles at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In recognizing the tendency for selfishness and the inherent threat to unity that you and I bring with us everywhere we go, we may be tempted right here to make a critical error. We understand the importance of unity. We understand that we all carry within us this saboteur that wants to upset unity any place we go, but even in that, we might make a mistake in execution. And the critical error as we would seek to pursue humility and strive for unity is this, that we mistake the solution to fixate upon ourselves and upon our sin without looking to Christ. 
Now certainly we must recognize the specific areas that we bring sin into the equation and repent of those, but just fixating upon ourselves is not the solution for unity. This is why Robert Murray McShane wisely counseled another, for every look at self, take ten looks to Christ. To say that we are to look to Christ, or even as Paul says here, to have the mind of Christ, is only helpful insofar as we understand who Christ is. Otherwise, this sort of exhortation to have the mind of Christ just sounds like a cheer of, Jesus was nice, can you just be nice? That's not at all what Paul is going for here. That won't cut it. In order to understand the fullness of Paul's reasoning here, we need to track with his logic. The picture he paints for us is of Christ in this way. He says, first of all, consider Christ as eternal. He was in the form of God. He's the very essence of God. He is rightfully enjoying all the majesty and honor and eternal greatness that is afforded a member of the Godhead. Yet, Christ did not consider his co-equal status as something to be grasped. The Greek word here literally means to seize or, or to snatch up. Christ though he had every right to maintain the status of honor and exaltation, he did not cling to that honor. This is humility in its purest form. Because unity cannot exist where people are quick to claim what they deserve or clutch tightly to what they believe as to what they are owed. Paul says, look to Christ. Consider Christ and his eternality. Consider his abiding and eternal worth far greater than any one of us could ever claim. And yet, look at his willingness to humble himself. And then he says, not only look there, consider Christ as incarnate. Jesus was not obligated to become man. He could have allowed all of humanity to perish and it would not have diminished the brightness of his holiness or his justice by one lumen. But in his goodness, in his mercy, he emptied himself of all the privileges of God, all the honor by becoming man. Paul says, consider that. Lewis writing on the incarnation C.S. Lewis said, the eternal being who knows everything, who created the whole universe, became not only a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. And in classic Lewis fashion, he says, if you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. I think you could even go further than that. Consider Christ in his incarnation. Consider Christ crucified. Because Paul goes on and says, in becoming a man, what did he do? Well, he became a man, and in doing that, he could have come into humanity at any point in history. Have you ever thought of this? He could have come into humanity at any place on the globe. He could have come with any status. And yet, what did he do? 
He came to first century Israel as a lowly Galilean, as the son of a carpenter. And not only that, he was perfectly obedient to the law of God and to the will of his father every second. And not only that, he was obedient to the very point of death. And not just any death, the brutal and shameful death of a Roman cross. Lest we forget all of this willful humbling on the part of Christ was for sinners. Christ considered guilty rebels more significant than himself. Christ did not look out for his own interests, but for the interests of his betrayers. Consider Christ not only as crucified, but Paul says, consider Christ as exalted. Even after submitting to death, Paul says, Christ did not breathe his last and then smugly take back up his divine honor and ascend to the throne of the Father. Notice Paul's language. Upon dying, Christ remained submitted to the Father. For the sake of his people, he relied upon the Father to exalt him, to raise him up. Even in the grave, Christ took the path of humility. He didn't make a name for himself. He allowed the Father to bestow that name upon him. How important this is. Because humility does not begrudgingly endure for a season and then pop up and pat itself on the back. No, humility remains humble, leaving the matters of honor and recognition to God alone. How much you and I have to learn in this. Because if you are anything like me, how quickly we are prone to suck it up for the good of others, and then when the opportunity is right, snatch the glory for ourselves, making sure everybody knows just how much we've had to endure for the sake of others. And we bestow honor upon ourselves. Proverbs 27, 2, let another praise you, and not your own mouth. A stranger, not your own lips. How much we need to be reminded of this. Christ, who dwelt in the place of eternal power and authority, descended to the lowest depths and has been exalted to the highest honor. Paul says, consider that. He has given and has been given a name that is above every name. His name is Jesus, the Savior of sinners, and he will receive submission from every knee and from every tongue. God will make sure of it. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, and in fact you're rather headstrong in refusing to honor Jesus as God, please pay close attention to what the Bible says here. Even those who pridefully dismiss Christ will one day acknowledge him as Lord. There is a day when Jesus will return and he will judge the living, he will judge the dead, and every single person will stand before him and bow, recognizing his true honor, his true worth, and his true 
holiness. This is why we as Christians, we would plead with you to hear of this mercy and what Christ has done, that he forgives sin, that he considers rebels, that he considers wayward, that he will give us new desires. This is why the scriptures compel us not only to hear, but then to repent and believe in this good news. So church, do you see what this entire passage is aiming at here? Do not lose the thrust of Paul's concern in, in the details of what he's building towards. Do you see this great concern of, of Paul and what the Lord would have for us as his people today? He says there, this mind, literally the mind of Christ who willingly endured all of this, the thrust of this passage is to proclaim to us that this mind is ours. This is not a picture that you put on the wall and say, can you jump that high? It's not a mark that we set and say, can you be that humble? No, the, the, the announcement of the gospel of this is what Christ has done, and this mind of Christ, it's ours as we share in Christ. We, it is wired into our new nature. It's coded into our DNA as new creatures in Christ. This means, then, church, that there is great hope for unity in the church and in our homes, that it is possible as brothers and sisters in Christ to think so highly of the interests of others that we are willing to crucify our own interests because we have the mind of Christ. It is possible for a husband, it is possible for a wife to be of one mind, not selfish, but sacrificial in their daily interactions because we have the mind of Christ. After all, the appeal for unity that is given in the Bible is so much more than an appeal to try harder or just dig deeper. The command for unity, notice this, and it is a command. The command for unity is not on the basis of the law, but upon the announcement of the gospel. This is revolutionary in the way that we pursue humility with one another. Because the flow of logic says this, if you belong to Christ, then your daily living can and must bear the mind of Christ. The command is built upon the promise. All of that being true, we must become intensely practical at this point. Well, we rejoice in that and we agree with that. The Spirit of God would have us to examine our own lives and ask the question, what do we do when we recognize we're not unified? We can plainly see we're not of one mind. I can plainly see that I'm not seeking the interests of others. More specifically, if we claim the name of Christian and yet exhibit behavior that is contrary to the mind of Christ, we have some reckoning to do. If this mind is ours, and yet that mind is not seen in our daily living, we need to square accounts. What do we do in that instance? I think we have two options at this point. 
Number one, it's possible that we are simply deceived. Meaning, we've been thinking that we could pursue self and abandon humility. We've been deceived into thinking that we can, we can buy into this lie of the enemy, believing that we could have what we want, gratify ourselves as we desire, in total disregard for neighbor and for God. We've been deceived in thinking that we could have it both ways, that everything will be fine. If that is the case, then there's only one thing for us to do, is to repent and believe. It is to repent of our selfish ambition. When we see that we've been only looking out for our own interests, we repent of that. We repent of our love of self. We repent of sin and believe not only in Christ's ability to grant forgiveness, but the promise that I have the mind of Christ. I believe not only in forgiveness, but I believe in what I have in Christ. And so I say, I have the mind of Christ. I don't have to live this way. I'm not a slave to these thoughts. I'm a slave to righteousness. I believe that that is true. It is possible that we've just simply been deceived in our thinking of unity and humility, but there is a second possibility, and it is equally as grave. If we hear this plea for unity, and we see no regard for humility and unity in our lives, it's not just that we might be deceived. There exists the possibility that we might actually be dead. This is a matter of spiritual birth. Remember I said the crux of all of this is what Paul says is you have the mind of Christ. However, if you have not been born again, you do not have the mind of Christ. Romans says that you're still in the flesh. And someone who does not have the mind of Christ who's still in the flesh cannot please God. In fact, they have no appetite for God. They are dead towards spiritual things. So if I hear that unity and humility ought to be amongst those who profess Christianity, but I see no evidence of that in my life, I, I need to recognize something. More specifically, if the idea of self-sacrifice, if the idea of humbling yourself, seeking the interest of others, if that is repugnant to you, it's a, if it's a constant source of fighting for you, no real track record of seeing this come about, is it possible that you do not actually have the mind of Christ? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not speaking at all about the struggle to do this because the struggle is the essence of faith. Go read Galatians. What I'm talking about here is much more grave. There's no struggle at all because there's not even a desire. I'm speaking about this horrible condition of not even caring, meaning the interests of others bore you. The thought of sacrificing time or money or energy for those unlike you is unheard of. Friend, you must consider how does that square with Christ himself? The call is the same. Repent and believe. 
A Christian is one who's been absolutely undone by the humble sacrifice of Christ. They see his humiliation for sinners as beautiful, as endearing, as humbling, as convicting, and they themselves are transformed as a result. The reason that we strive for humility is because it's the way that we accomplish unity. And the reason that we strive for unity is that the way that we accomplish mission. What this means then, if we are really concerned about the spread of the gospel in Placer County and and Sacramento and to the uttermost regions of the earth, if we are really concerned about the gospel going out there, then we will first look into the eyes of one another and say, are we unified? Humility, unity, and mission. See, the spread of the gospel demands a unified church, and a unified church is a humble church, and a humble church has the mind of Christ. This is why Paul says, let this mind be in you. So brothers and sisters, in light of all of that, may God be glorified in his church as he continues to conform us to the image of his Son, as he continues to shape and mold us, convict us, refine us, and by his mercy, use us for his purposes as he sees fit. Would you join with me in prayer as we commit this to the Lord and ourselves to him? Father, we stand in awe when we read of your word and consider just exactly what Christ has done. When we pause and we begin to think upon all of his greatness and who he actually is and what he himself has done for those who are completely undeserving, ill-willing, uninterested, contrary to all of his goodness and ways, and yet, Father, you have sent him for that purpose to draw us to yourself. Lord, how much we need the work of your Spirit, how much we need the mind of Christ, and we read and we hear by faith that it is ours. And so we pray and we ask for help. We pray that you would continue to conform this mind within us, that you would continue to refine us and shed your light and shine your light upon those areas that are contrary to the very mind of Christ. Lord, give us hope in the, in the midst of friction and, and struggles and just outright battles that as brothers and sisters in Christ, you are working in us a far greater glory, that you are working in us to conform us to the image of your Son, that unity is possible, that the very humility of Christ is something that you've given to us. And so would you cause it to bear good fruit in our lives? Would you cause it to be visible amongst us? Would you bless your church here in Northern California and here at Veritas and at Emmanuel and in the surrounding regions? Would you cause your people to be unified to such a degree that the gospel goes forth with greater conviction, greater power, greater fruit? We ask that you would do this in our homes, in our marriages, between neighbors. You would do this in our own thoughts and minds as we consider what we deserve or what we want. Father, in all of this, we submit ourselves to you and we pray and we long for that day that we will see Christ and that his name, our knees, will bow and our lips will joyfully confess 
that he is Lord. To your glory, Father, we pray. Amen.